joining me at the top of the hour from Hockey Night in Canada, Calgary Flames broadcast as well. Uh, bottom of the hour, uh, we'll be talking about the Philadelphia Flyers and most specifically Morgan Frost. Health bomb, five games in a row. Charlie O'Connor uh, drops by there. In the meantime, our good friend Thomas Trance from The Athletic, co-host of Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650, joins me now. I want to open up, Trancer, by asking you about just a delicious word, and that is schadenfreude. And that means taking delight in the misery <laughs> of others. And I know yeah. that going back to the old Smythe division, there is, as much as we make mm. of the Battle of Alberta, there's a healthy hatred from the NHL team in BC to both teams in Alberta. How are... Vancouver Canucks fans enjoying what is happening in Alberta right now. Oh yeah, it's a sunny day in Vancouver and chests are puffed out, Jeff. I was walking the seawall on my way to the <laughs> rink. I was stunned by how cocksure everyone seems. No, you know what? The flame sputtering I think was a little bit more like it's a little bit more expected, right? I, I, in some ways Calgary's not seen really? And as well, yeah, because it's not the, the Flames aren't seen as a threat by Canucks fans. Canucks fans are like pretty confident that their Canucks are better than the Flames. Uh, wh- whether that's widely shared or not, whether that's a reasonable opinion or not, that's how Canucks fans have felt. Uh, I think you know for a few years, frankly. The Oilers, though, right? I think the Oilers were well recognized as a team, you know, with a real shot at winning the Pacific Division. Um, they were my President's Trophy yep. pick. Um, you know, I know a lot of people's Stanley Cup pick. So, you know, to see that team yeah. this season with all the stakes around them struggle, I think is a lot of fun. And the fact that it comes on the heels of the Canucks beating them in the first two games, right? The fact that the Canucks played them twice, beat them twice, and then things have since spiraled, right. I think gives Canucks fans, you know, the opportunity to say stuff like, well, the Canucks ruined the Oilers. Right. And, and I think that's a especially <laughs> appreciated, like that's appreciated by Canucks fans who haven't exactly had a lot of yeah. material to, to use against Oilers fans yeah. in recent years. Well, well, it's interesting, too, because you look at the Calgary Flames and you look at last season, you look at the start so far this season and the quotes and the comments by uh, Nikita Zadorov, even though he tried to mm. massage them after last night's loss to the St. Louis Blues. <laughs> yeah. we, we all know what he was shooting for there. That's not exactly a secret. But we look at the Oilers and we look at that playoff series from uh, two seasons ago and we say, is it, you know, c- could it be that the Edmonton Oilers just broke the Calgary Flames? I mean, the right. evidence is certainly there. And I say this sort of half tongue in cheek too, but I'll look at the Vancouver Canucks and I'll say the same thing. As much as Edmonton broke Calgary, maybe Vancouver just broke Edmonton here in those first two games. They have not look. And and you know the thing the thing about a transfer is they can't score. Like wh- when oh, did you think that we would be saying like I, I understand I, I understand everything about the defending and you know the goalies are hard to hit etc. But when have we? When have you ever had a conversation revolving around how come the Oilers can't score goals? News. No, it's it, it, it's wild. Especially, I mean, you think about uh, obviously McDavid's not in the lineup for a little bit here, but I mean McDavid's <laughs> so far and away the best hockey playing human on the planet, and you know his his teammate yeah. Leon Draisaitl is actually a real consistent fifty goal hundred point guy. I mean, when was the last time we even had a consistent fifty goal hundred point guy? You know, I, I, I mean, look at some guys over the last 15 years who are going to the Hall of Fame. They weren't consistent 50-goal, 100-point guys. Like, it's it's insane how much talent they have. And to be struggling like this, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's inexplicable. I still think this team is going to figure it out, Jeff. But it's worth noting, like, I was doing some random math, as, as I want to do yesterday, and I was just thinking, like, if the, you know, the thing about an extreme good start and an extreme bad start is how sticky it is in a league where there's so many three-point games as the season goes along. And it gets late in an awful hurry if you're a team like the Edmonton Oilers who have piled up, stacked up, regulation losses one on top of another. Um, You know, I I was sort of thinking, like, if the Oilers were to go, say, 4-8-1, that's nine points from their next 13 games. That's not great, not terrible. It's it's just like you sputter and you don't pull out of it for another two and a half weeks. If, If that were to happen... They could play the rest of the season at the point pace they manage, the dizzying point pace they manage next season, and still only get to 94 points, right? Like, it's, it's amazing how tight the margins get. Uh, if you've started slowly to this point, should that not be arrested and arrested dramatically immediately over the next two and a half weeks? The, the, yeah. It's not late yet for the Oilers, 
but we're getting to a point where we can see that from here. It's it started to get uncomfortable, and then you know what will happen if they don't make the playoffs. You know they're going to win the lottery, and Macklin Celebrini is going to Edmonton <laughs> because that's the way it works. That's the way oh, it works, man. Stratzer. You know, you can I'm see from, it's coming a mile away. From the ranch in North <laughs> California to, to Edmonton, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a born and hardcore Canucks fan, I mean, that would be a, that would be a tough break for Mac. I'm sure he'd be excited, though. Um, all right, Thomas Trance <laughs> along with me from The Athletic and co-host of Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 660. Uh, before we get to the Vancouver Canucks, uh, I want to ask you about Vasily Podkolzin. Um, mm-hmm. We all saw, I guess many of us at this point, uh, saw the hit, the, the Keaton Middleton hit uh, in that game yep. uh, Abbotsford in Colorado the other uh, the other night. And good to see him post up on social media, essentially. I'm okay, don't worry about it. Thumbs up picture, that was great. No one likes to see stretchers we saw last night with Eric Branstrom. That was scary, yeah. too. Um how does Pretty the organization play, feel about Pod Colson right now? Pretty right, right along the yeah, right along the boards. One yeah. in the corner, um, the other one, you know, Brandstrom more along the boards before he got to the corner. But yeah, they were more. Yeah. You're right; they were more similar than different. That was not; those were not chalk and cheese hits. Um, no. How does the organization feel about Pod Colson right now? And sort of what's the you know what's 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 the the future here? Like, where are we going? What's the next domino to fall in in his career? Yeah, I mean the the thing about. Basili Pod Colson is no one can or ever has or ever will accuse him of being anything less than a, a, an extraordinarily hard worker with the best possible attitude imaginable. So he, he gets reassigned yeah. uh, to the American League. He, he probably had expectations making the NHL team. In fact, he definitely had expectations making the NHL team. It didn't happen for him. He really struggled at training camp. He really struggled in the preseason. If you noticed him, it was for something negative. Like it was one of those stretches for a guy who's a pretty talented player. Right. He, he just didn't look right. It, it, you know, it, it, at no point was it a competition. Like, he was never going to beat out Jack Stanika or Phil DiGiuseppe or, or any of those guys based on what we saw performance-wise. Like, on merit, he, he was going to be reassigned. And yet he goes down, and because he's Vasily Podkolzin and he's the easiest guy in the world to root for, um, you know, he, he sort of ducks the elephant in the room, the usual disappointment gap that you get for the first couple weeks when, yeah. a, guy makes the, when a guy doesn't make the NHL roster. And just sort of came out, um, you know, as, as if he'd been in a cage eating red meat for a few weeks. Like, he was hitting, he was doing some of the, <laughs> the playing reckless stuff that this organization yeah. wants from him. And that's really the thing. Like, Vasily Colson, you know, we're talking about a guy, he's got the NHL frame. He's got this high-velocity shot. He thinks the game well. And the best part about it is he's got this completely honest motor, right? Like, you're never seeing him not backcheck. You're never seeing him not try to be on the right side of the puck. His sort of issue in terms of establishing himself in the NHL has been that he's a thinker, right? Like he 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 can get a little too risk averse as opposed to being like, all right, I'm bigger and stronger than almost everybody. I should just put my head down and and hit this guy, or I should just put my head down and and go to the net. Um, so it's good to see that he's succeeded in the American League until his injury, and and once he gets right, I'd expect him to continue to succeed there. You know, the Canucks are excited about how he's mm. worked on the half wall on the power play that they think the light's starting to go on in terms of his uh, his understanding that, like, oh, I can just overpower this guy. Uh, I should just shoot top corner mm. uh, rather than think too hard about what what the right play is. Um, but fundamentally, Jeff, when, when it's a guy whose issue, whose primary issue is confidence, I don't really believe that you can build NHL confidence in the American League. You know, like, I, I really don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. I think no matter what, once he comes back up here, there's going to be that question. Like, what we need to see is him play relatively unencumbered, free, fun hockey. And, and, and I think if he can do that for 30 games in a, with, with a predictable role at the bottom end of the Canucks lineup, and, you know, he's got the size profile that you could throw him on a fourth energy line, right, and be like, hey, just go hit people and sure. have fun. And I think if he was permitted to do that and had a pretty well, consistent, like, 9 to 12 minutes a game, you'd see a different player in 30 games. So, you know, what's interesting about, about a lot of that there is uh, I'm always curious about the Vancouver Canucks and, and what they're looking for right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Brian Burke will always talk about, you know, when you take over a team, the first thing you have to do is, you know, shovel out the barn before you show the horse. We've talked about that before, and they're still, you know, moving out of some of the, the previous um, uh, regime's players until you sure. get 
your team. And it does feel very much like they want, you know, more aggressive, more hostile. Um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm almost positive that they were, you know, at least inquiring or had some type, some types of conversations around bringing someone like Austin Watson uh, mm-hmm. in before he signed the, the, the tryout with the, with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Like there was something there uh, with the Vancouver Canucks and, and that player. Is that something that there's still in, in your mind? targeting that you know hostile aggressive in your face smash you type player yeah i think so and and you can actually see it in the composition of vancouver's sort of bottom six forward group i mean on merit right like on merit if you wanted to put the optimal on a spreadsheet on paper third line out right the 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 seventh Mm -hmm. eighth and ninth best forward in this organization your third line would look something like niels hoaglander pew Suter. And Connor Garland, average height five foot eight, right? Um, no chance, yep. no chance that Rick Tockett's going to do that. And in fact, when when he scrambled up his lines, like we always see, whether it's a Stadnika or a, or a Dakota Joshua or one of his bigger bodies, like stays, he doesn't put three small guys together, even if that you know is again on paper the, may, may be the best option. Um, I, I think it's a real preoccupation: the the lack of size up front, the inability to squash plays on the wall. I think that's a real occupation for this coach, and, and I do think speaks to a still-in-progress reconstruction effort uh, you know, up and down this roster because it also exists on the right side of this blue line. Uh, the fact that this team's gotten good results despite some of the relatively obvious holes that remain in the lineup um, you know, I, I think is something mm-hmm. to view as progress but also to keep in mind right, as a, as a sign of the road still left to walk. Uh, Quinn Hughes, uh, you've been on specifically this season uh, on Quinn Hughes about just like next level, like the sea looks yeah. great. The performance is fantastic. I think in your last piece, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you intimated that um, we're now under the belief that he actually invented oxygen, which I didn't know before reading your, your piece there on, on Quinn Hughes. But that was that was that was interesting to discover. Yeah. Um, but really, like <laughs> hyperbole aside, like how penicillin do you? Penicillin too, Jeff. <laughs> and penicillin as well. Uh, we knew it was a Canadian find. Um, I mean, I don't even know how much. I don't even know this. There's a question here about Quinn Hughes. Other than holy smokes, as much as we talk about Jack in New Jersey and you know uh, the Art Ross Trophy and maybe the Hart Trophy as well. I mean, we could see the Norris with one brother and the Hart slash um, uh, Norris the uh, uh, Ross Trophy with the other right now. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Um, okay, so, look, Quinn Hughes has leveled up. I, I don't know how else to say it. He actually leveled up defensively last season, but this team's total permissiveness in all phases of the game, I think, obscured that from the public's attention, right? I mean, this team was giving up 20 glorious scoring chances a game and five goals yeah. against a game with some of the worst goaltending in the league. So no one was going to give credit to their number one defenseman for seriously upping his game defensively. But that's what happened. I mean, with Quinn Hughes on the ice last season, the Canucks were plus 25 on five, right? So 81 goals for 61 goals yeah. games. Now, traditional plus minus, which also dings offensive players like Quinn Hughes because they're eating some fake dashes when they're, uh, when, when there's, they're on the ice for a shorthanded goal against or, a, or yeah. an empty netter against. Um, I have no idea why we have a stat that somehow serves to artificially deflate the importance of superstar players, but it's, uh, it's very NHL. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, he was plus 20 uh, <laughs> at five on five. Uh, if you go look at the Canucks without him five on five, they were like minus 60. Like the, the, the difference was that the Canucks outperformed Vegas five on five with Quinn Hughes on the ice and underperformed the wow. Ducks at, at five on five when he was off the ice. That, that happened last year. What's different this year is the attacking mentality. Like, as much as Quinn Hughes has been viewed as this offensive defenseman, he's really been more of a signal caller, like an unbelievable passer who wasn't necessarily a threat to score. And, and now, you know, he's upped his shot rate significantly. He's looking for that shot more. He's getting better opportunities to shoot. And the shot looks better. It looks like he's worked a lot on, you know, some of the details of walking the line, on how he can beat a guy in a position to shoot as opposed to beating a guy and then finding that he's, in fact, not in a, in a shooting lane and, and better pass it. Um, you know, the, the aggression of his offensive game has now gone up another level. And that, to me, makes this really interesting. I think he's had this 
defensive glow-up that was widely unacknowledged, and now I think he's in the process of breaking out to an even different level offensively, which for a guy who had 76 points last season is a pretty exciting prospect. Um, yeah, tune in. Like, honestly, just just watch this guy. I don't think there's three defenders oh, in the league that you'd take over both. him at this point. But listen, both. Uh, I mean, and there's there's Luke as well, who's on the horizon. But both. I mean, yeah. watch your New Jersey Devils games. Watch Jack every time he's on the ice. Something. Yeah, happens. Warp Speed Hockey. Vancouver. It's awesome. Every time he, it's it's so much fun to watch. Grants, um, <laughs> this is great. We'll look forward to the Vancouver Canucks and the New York Rangers tomorrow. The nightcap game on Hockey Night in Canada. Thanks as always uh, for stopping by. Full value performance once again, Grants. <laughs> have hey. yourself a wonderful Friday and weekend, my friend. I know the the chests are puffed out. Right now in Vancouver, not only are they playing well, but everyone in Alberta is just taking it into the ditch right now. So enjoy it, BC. Enjoy it. Thanks for your tour. Hey, I got to throw one by you, by the way, because I think Casey DeSmith, I think Casey DeSmith will start tonight, and they'll save Demko to, to duel Shesterkin on on the Saturday. But I want to run this by you because I think Good. you're one of ten people in the entire world that would appreciate it. I'm thinking about suitcase DeSmith. As a nickname for, uh, for the Oh, oh, yes. I love it. Yes, yes. Count me in. The, the old schools. On, on the week where, where the Vancouver Canucks lost, lost a legend in, in Dunk Wilson, uh, let's mm-hmm. absolutely go with, uh, with, a, with, a, with a good suitcase Smith uh, nickname. So give that to Casey. I love it. I'll try to make it stick here. Thanks, Transfer. You'll be go. good. Thanks, Jeff. Bye. Get a suitcase Smith reference. That's awesome from Transfer. Okay, time now for Line Change. Presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book, Bet Local. Uh, Toronto, Nashville on Hockey Night in Canada. Puck line minus one and a half for the Maple Leafs. Uh, the under is five and two in the last seven meetings between these two teams. Uh, the under is hit four of the last five Toronto games. Uh, Maple Leafs are five and two in the last seven in Nashville and four and one in the last five games. Overall, Maddie Marchese not with us today, so I will soldier on here. I mean, the one player more than anyone else in this game that is of particular interest and note is the netminder for the Toronto Maple Leafs. As much as everyone's talking about Joe Wall and the nickname Brick is emerging right now, and that's that's most likely going to stick, and that's a pretty cool nickname too. You know, there was once a least goaltender by the name of the China Wall, and that was, of course, Johnny Bauer. Brick is cool, too. Love that one as well. Uh, Ilya Samsonov, we have not seen since the game against the Tampa Bay Lightning, where he checks notes, surrendered three goals on four shots. And I don't think he wants to exactly surrender this crease that easily. As much as everyone's talking about Joe Wall, the future of the Nets, for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and has he taken the prize now? Is he the number one guy? I don't think Samsonov wants to concede that too quickly. We'll see what happens tomorrow on Hockey Night in Canada as the Toronto Maple Leafs face off against the Nashville Predators. That's Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sportsbook, Bet Local. We're talking about the Philadelphia Flyers in a couple of moments, but up first, from Hockey Night in Canada and your Calgary Flames broadcasts as well, the one and only Kelly Rudy. Stay tuned. Merrick's show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360. Your daily dose of everything NFL. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. hour to the program. Six games on the go around the NHL this evening. Oh, by the way, the return of Andrei Svechnikov. Should have mentioned that earlier, but as I've been told before, bad host. Andrei Svechnikov. Uh, the Carolina Hurricanes makes his season debut as Carolina faces off against the San Jose Sharks. A goal, a goal, my kingdom for a goal. San Jose cannot find the back of the net. Although you may make the argument that if you're going to be bad, be really bad. It's the old Sam Kinison line. If you're going to miss heaven, don't miss it by two inches. Right now, the San Jose Sharks are showing you how to get what you want at the end of the season, whether it's Macklin Celebrini or Cole Eisenman or whomever else emerges. Although I still do think it's going to be Macklin Celebrini as the number one pick overall. So uh, Andre Svechnikov returns. And as I say every year about Andre Svechnikov, is this the year that he wins the Rocket Richard? Like, you look at the potential that Andrei Svechnikov has specifically. That guy can just flat-out shoot it. That guy is super strong. I remember the first time I saw Andrei Svechnikov, he was playing with the Barry Colts of the OHL and talking to him afterwards as well. 
And I know we, there you know, was a time in junior hockey where we would all <clears throat> kind of straighten our ties and we'd see you know, various uh, Russian hockey players show up in the OHL and we would wonder, is that guy really 17 years old? There's no way. Let me see the birth certificate. But uh, right away, Andrei Svechnikov looked like he was about 25, played like he was about 25, shot like he was about 25. I think we've all been waiting for him to really pop to that next level. Again, I always cross my fingers for guys like him because you want to see every single person realize their potential. And I really do believe that somewhere in there is a season where Andrei Svechnikov uh, can win the Rocket Richard. Anyhow, uh, with that, we turn our attention to Kelly Rudy from Hockey Night in Canada and the Calgary Flames broadcast as well. And first of all, Kelly, thanks so much for stopping by today. And I thought that it's a, it's a Friday afternoon. Uh, love stories. We can get into, you know, the flames and logs on the fire and all the, the, the micro about everything that's happened so far this, uh, this week around the NHL. But I just want to start off by talking about a couple of hockey stories, if you'll indulge me for a couple of seconds. So... Ken Reed was on the other day, and anyone watching on 360 right now, I'm holding up Ken Reed's new book, and it's excellent. Uh, it's called Ken Reed's Hometown Hockey Heroes, and it documents stories from you know small town Canada and the local legends um, that exist there. Whether it's uh, Ken Cowboy McTeer to Dave Tucker to Paul Palillo to Robbie Forbes to Bruce Campbell to Pinky Gallant, like legends in smaller town Canada. I'll tell you something, Kelly. The other day I mentioned a guy by the name of Paul Saundercook, who I played hockey with, at, and he was like a, a big legend for me. Like I'd never been on the ice with anyone near his talent. And after the show, he sent me a, sent me a message on Instagram saying that him and his daughters were listening and heard, and they couldn't believe that I had mentioned his name, and we played together like on Martino Brothers years and years ago, and I haven't talked to him since I was about eight years old. So that was a great, a great connection. I am curious, uh, Kelly... Did you have your local legend, your hometown hero, the guy that never made it in the NHL, but you looked at and you went, wow, this guy's an incredible hockey player? Okay, so we had uh, growing up the LaCure brothers and Tony and Doug. And ah. they, were, uh, okay. they were so unbelievable, so better than everybody else. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would skate out at... Uh, Jeepers, I'm forgetting the name now. Uh, uh, Rink in West Edmonton. And this is where all of us would congregate in the summer. So there would be Rocky Saginaw, Jim Thompson, uh, just so many. There there would be at times uh, 10 or 12 NHL guys, along with all the local guys. If you paid three bucks an hour, you could play with all of us. And so it was amazing. So I remember the Lecure brothers were amazing. But the one guy, when I was listening to that, and I sent both you and Canada a text about the storytelling, and it was uh, riveting radio. It was beautiful. Fun. Uh, I played, I played uh, track and field, and I played rugby and football against Hank Olisic. And I couldn't believe how good he was. Like, he oh, was wow. head and tails above anybody, any athlete that I've ever seen. Now, he went on, as you know, to be, you know, one of the best punters ever in the history of the CFL. Yeah. But his his uh, sportsmanship, he was just so good at everything that it blew me away. I remember the first time I played, he, I think he was in shot put. And I'd never seen a guy that big and, and put that shot that far out in the field. I was like, my gosh, I have no chance competing against this guy. And I didn't. <laughs> I just love it. You know, there's um, there, there's something about, and, and again, like Ken Dryden would always talk about this. Sports is best when you're 12 years old. Everything is bigger than life. Everything is, is that yeah. much you know, bigger when, when you're 12. Like the, the eyes of a 12-year-old sports fan is, is, is certainly fascinating. And I think that anyone listening or watching right now can, can understand that. And everybody had, like for me it was, I mentioned this on the show the other day, a guy by the name of Bruce Dowie. Bruce Dowie was a goalie for, for the Marlies, and I thought he was the best goaltender I ever saw in my life. Had a very brief pro career, but I thought that Bruce Dowie, like every time my dad would take me to Marlboro's games, like that was it. Bruce Dowie was the guy. And then I would go to WHA games, and you'll, you'll like this one, Kelly. You know who my guy was when I went to see WHA games? Like I loved Vaslav Nedimansky, obviously, who oh, was in the Hall sure. of Fame. Yeah. But the guy, because I was a goalie growing up, the guy that I gravitated to going to Toro's games, it's John Garrett. 
was Cheech. Like, oh, he was my guy. I was yeah. like, oh, is John Garrett going to be in I really want to see John Garrett. I really want to see John Garrett. He was my guy. Now, I had another goalie conversation this week that I wanted to run by you. Uh, and it was um, earlier this week was the anniversary of Rich Sutter scoring um, a goal, 1983 Philadelphia Flyers. And that gave the sixth Sutter brother a goal which, as you well know, is a record. So all six brothers have, have a goal in the NHL. Yep. And it was against the Toronto Maple Leafs. It was an 8-5 to five final. And he scored it on Mike Palmatier. And I'm like, oh, this is great. I'll mention this on the show. And so I called Richie and just trying to get some, some background on the goal and uh, scoring on Palmatier. And he said, like, look, like, Palmatier was my hero. I loved Mike Palmatier in the summers as, you know, the youngest Sutter boy. I, I had to go in nets. And I was, uh, I was a right catch goalie. I was a southpaw. I was a lefty. And yep. he said, uh, I, I've never been scared of anything in the NHL, never been scared of anything in hockey, but I was scared to ask Mike Palmatier if I could get a set of his, uh, of his gloves, his catcher and his blocker. I was too terrified. He goes, I did years later, but I had to ask Pat Jablonski in St. Louis if I got to have a set of his that I could use in the summer. So he got Jablonski's because he was too scared to ask Mike Palmatier um, for that. Did you ever have any, like, were you ever starstruck i mean listen you played with wayne but were you ever starstruck by anyone in the nhl that you were too scared to like ask for a stick or anything like that or in richie's case a, a blocker catcher uh it would have been wayne uh, i was starstruck when i made the islanders of course well even more so jeff in 1980 when i was drafted and i went to that first training camp and they had just won their first Stanley Cup, and so with uh, Clark Gillies and Dennis Potvin and Brian Trotche, Mike Bossy, Billy Smith, yeah. Bob Bourne, Bob Nystrom, John Tonelli, the list goes on and on. As you can imagine, as an 18- or 19-year-old kid walking into that dressing room, and by the way, as you know, I was extremely shy, so that was very uncomfortable for me. But uh, and my first ever flight to Chicago for that preseason game, and this was no accident, I was in a middle seat, uh, right between Mike Bossy and Brian Trotche on a commercial flight. So can you imagine that starstruck moment? Wow. But still, when I played with Wayne, Wayne was uh, and still is in my uh, – yeah, we all hold him in such high regard that one of the things that mm. uh, he appreciated about people like myself, Charlie Huddy, Pat Conacher, uh, a, a few others – we never asked Wayne for autographs We because we just thought we see everybody else asking Wayne for autographs and it must be such an imposition and take up so much of his time, yet he did it always. But the three of us just sort of just we're like, I'm chill. I've got all I need. So I the only time I asked Wayne ever for an autograph, I did it for one, every family uh, group in my in my family and Donna's family. So everybody got a signed hockey stick from Wayne and that's the only time I've ever asked him for an autograph uh, but I cherish every moment that I had with him for sure you know um, such a wonderful well a player uh, B person and C family yeah. you know I um, here, here's a story You'll, uh, maybe you've heard me tell this one before Kelly yeah. um, a buddy of mine who works at Rawlings so in Brantford Ontario um, he's, uh, he's, a uh, now he's a, a men's league hockey player and he's playing like a late night Tuesday game. And, um, you know, Walter before he passed would just always kind of hang around the local arena uh, and he'd always be there yeah. either picking up pucks or just having conversations with guys. And, uh, his name is J- Jason Shipley and Ship told me like it was a Tuesday and at the end of the first period, they're getting pumped like four or five to one, like, Oh geez, tongues are hanging out. There's only a couple of guys on the bench. It's two more periods and this thing isn't getting any better. <laughs> And he says that out of nowhere, Kelly, he says out of nowhere, Walter Gretzky appears and says, you guys suck. You need a coach. And so for the last two periods and this Tuesday night men's league game where he goes, it was incredible. Walter Gretzky coached our team. It was a, a highlight for all these old beer league guys that are banging it out on a, on a, on a Tuesday night. He said it was, it was a we still lost, but it was just the, the coolest thing in the world, but just had that, that star struck moment. Like here's Walter Gretzky, Canada's hockey dad saying, you guys suck. You need a coach. And Walter on this lonely Tuesday night coached his men's league team as a, as beautiful a story as that is, that doesn't surprise sure. you about Walter, does it? It doesn't, and I have a, a, another story. Now, this is not my story, but I'll share it. It's Derek Wills, the play-by-play guy on uh, the Fan 960 yeah. here in Calgary. 
Yeah, so Derek grew up in Hamilton, but he and his buddies found out where the Gretzkys lived, right? And so uh, on a whim, they got in a car and they drove there. I think he said, Derek said they were about 16 because one of them could drive. So they get to the Gretzky's house, and now they're... Now they've got to get their nerve up to ring the doorbell to say hi. And Walter answers the door. And not only did he say hi, he invited the three kids downstairs into what what is maybe Canada's greatest hockey museum. And he went through everything for almost two hours, I think Derek said. Uh, he he yep. welcomed them in the house, showed them everything, and that's you know that's the Walter. That's another side that we all know about him and and uh, their graciousness. And Derek Wills loves to tell that story. Why not? Right? Not I've never been that's to the great. house, oh. but uh, I can imagine mm-hmm. what it would be like. You know, it's it's funny. I had a similar experience with Johnny Bauer. Um, years before okay. Johnny, ba- and I, I still, I, I still maintain Kelly that Johnny Bauer is the most popular Maple Leaf ever um, because yeah. young fans love Johnny Bauer. Of course, older fans, yeah. 1967 Stanley Cup, all of yeah. that. You know, they show that video during Maple Leafs games where he's, you know, sticking his face out and stopping a puck, and like the place comes unglued. And such a a love. Yeah. I just think that cross generationally. He may be the most popular Maple Leaf of all time. They're like the Gilmore crowd and the Clark crowd and the yep. Sundin yep. crowd. Now there's the Austin Matthews. But, like, from young to old, everyone loved John Bauer. And I remember the first time I went over there, I was shooting something. Um, and uh, afterwards, like, I must have spent, like, two or three hours as Johnny just sort of walked him and his wife, walked me through their basement and all the paraphernalia and all the, the, the different you know, collectibles and things. And, oh, there's the Honky the Christmas Goose single and everything. And I thought to myself, oh, wow, I, I must be really special. Like, Johnny Bauer did this for me. Wow, I must be a real big shot. And then I realized, like, everyone that I tell this story to who's, who's had a, a, a brush with Johnny Bauer has had the exact same experience. Like, he spent, yep. like, his entire career, anytime anyone would come over, it would be park two hours because Johnny Bauer is going to walk you through to the point about Walter, this Hall of Fame basement that he has. And and it really is staggering. And I, I just got to say, like, guys like Johnny Bauer, um, Walter Gretzky at, at the home where hockey has become such a part of their lives, it's great that they open the doors wide for everybody and share it with everybody. You know what I mean, Kelly? Oh, totally. And, you know, I... I got to meet uh, Johnny a few times, and uh, I remember saying something uh, about that, about Johnny, about how he everybody loves him, and you know the legend of Johnny Bauer and uh, the Johnny Bauer poke check, and uh, you know just yeah. really nice. And, and much to my surprise, one of his family members found out my address and sent me a really kind note about uh, thinking of their dad and you know sharing some uh, pleasant thoughts and. And that's cool, and that's it. Kind of brings me like our community. It's small, but it's really kind in a lot of cases. And so this year, when uh, I mentioned on the air that Vic Stasiak, my first coach in Medicine Hat, had passed away, again this summer, yeah. uh, I just get back from the playoffs, and my wife shows me this note that his daughter sent me uh, to the house, and just thanking me for thinking of her dad, Vic, and just. Those are the memories that'll last for me. I mean, I, I I love going down and seeing all the hockey memorabilia. I have two storage units here in Calgary where I keep all my old gear and sticks and everything, and I, I haven't really wow. shared with anybody. But those those messages, I've I've kept those notes because those are so important to me. I think that's incredible. You know, one of the, one of the things this week that Elliot and I talked about on uh, on the podcast on the uh, on the Monday drop. Uh, of the 32 Thoughts podcast, someone emailed in a question about goalie masks. And I thought a lot about goalie masks this week. Dunk Wilson uh, passed away, and he was one of the guys that used the old pretzel mask. Ken Dryden uh, would have used it. Bernie Perrant used it briefly as well. And uh, It looked bizarre. I'm not sure how much it actually protected your face, but we said that a lot about masks in those days uh, in general. But this one person emailed in. It was a really interesting question. It was, if you played in the NHL and could design your own goalie mask now, 
like, what would you put on it? Like, what, 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 would, what would the style be? And I, I stammered out something about, you know, Elizabeth Graham, who was, you know, 1927, the, the first, uh, uh, first uh, goaltender on record uh, to put on a mask. It was actually a fencing mask, and she wanted to protect a broken jaw. Uh, Clint Benedict, um, who, uh, who, who put one on after getting his, his nose broken, maybe a tribute there. And, and then I said yeah. Andy Brown as well, who was the last goaltender to oh, go maskless. Wow. In both the yeah. in the NHL and the WHA as well. So here's my question to you: If you could, and you can, I mean, listen. Since you retired, you've met so many different people. Maybe there's been different inspiration for a design. I don't know. I'm on a fishing trip here with you, Kelly. If you could <laughs> start your NHL career right now, Kelly Rudy, and regardless of the team that you're on, you could design your mask. As you see fit, Kelly Rudy on this day right now starts his NHL career. What goes on your mask? It would be something specific to the city that I'm playing in. So uh, it's not a fishing trip by you. I, for whatever reason, I growing up, I loved the New York Islanders, but I loved uh, Chico Resch. And do you remember one of Chico's first masks? He had a picture of Long Island, right? And that's yes, that was great mask. That great mask. Great mask. And then Mike Richter, uh, he's the one that really inspired me for my Hollywood because Mike Richter, he had a really simple design, but it was the Statue of Liberty on his mask. And I thought that was the – and I'm playing in the NHL at the time, and I thought that was the coolest mask I had ever seen because because of its simplicity, but because of how beautiful the artwork was. And I thought when anybody thinks of Manhattan, they think of the Statue of Liberty – and so that was the inspiration behind my Hollywood. When, when somebody goes to L.A., what do they think of? Well, of course, it's a Hollywood sign. So that yeah. would be yeah. my artwork. Wherever you play, I would, uh, I would take the most significant uh, landscape uh, and, and do art based on that, whatever that is. I don't know in Toronto's CN Tower. I don't know what Torontonians would think is their most significant to. Uh, uh, treasured landmark, uh, but every city has it. Like for Calgary, you could do the Calgary sure. Tower and the the Rocky the Rocky Mountains, or something identifying with Banff or something. Vancouver, you could do the seawall. Uh, I just think that we all have these uh, things that we identify with with certain cities, and that's what I would. Uh, sure. That's what I would do with my mask. Do you have a favorite goalie and favorite goalie mask growing up? Like, I always liked uh, Dave Dryden's uh, Chicago WHA mask. I thought was brilliant. Um, I mentioned yep. John Garrett earlier. I thought his, his Birmingham Bulls mask um, was one of the best I'd ever seen. And I and Kelly, and I hope Cheech is listening right now because I've, I've mentioned this to him before. I will never forgive him for painting over that mask because that mask belongs <laughs> at the Hall of Fame. But but back in the day, like you get traded, it's like okay, well it's a Toro's mask right now, it's a Bulls mask right now, but it, now it's going to be a Whalers mask because I'm playing with the New England Whalers. Uh, did you have a favorite mask growing up of, of anybody? With all due respect to Cheech, if he's uh, listening, or Lotto, depending on how, which nickname you want to leave him with. But uh, <laughs> I think all of us at that age, we all admired uh, or were fascinated with Jerry Cheevers with the stitches. Because whether, whether that's real yeah. or not, it's just so amazing to think, holy cow, this guy could have received this many stitches. I think some of it was, you know, made up to a certain degree because if you really look at yes. guys like Glenn Hall and Terry yeah. Sawchuk and right, they, they certainly uh, paid the price, but it, not to the extent that Jerry Cheever suggested, but it was still cool. Nonetheless. Uh, it was, it, it, it always served as a reminder. That's one thing I liked about it. It always served as a reminder to everybody about yeah. what these guys put themselves through. Like, that's the one thing that I, cause I'm with you, like regardless. And, and a lot of them, like that, that wasn't exactly where he got stitched up. Like it was, <laughs> it, it was showbiz, right? The mask was, we could all be on the same page about this. God, God bless Jerry. Chiro. I just liked it because it served as a reminder to everybody. just how dangerous the position was. And and was for for a lot of years. Like Kelly, I'm gonna be honest with you. There were so many times that I saw you playing and standing out there in front of Al McKinnis, and I, I would always oh, yeah. think to myself, "What's going through What's going through Kelly Rudy's mind right now?" Like I'm looking at your equipment, oh. I'm like, "What is going through Kelly Rudy's mind standing in front of Al well, McKinnis?" The, 
the good thing is current goaltenders uh, at any age don't have to be afraid like we were, and in and, and particular guys even older than I am. I remember uh, the first time I met an NHL scout, Jeff, and his name was Rudy Pillis, and I know you're familiar with Rudy and his history. Oh, yeah, and, legend, uh, yes. Before Joel Quenville won the Cups with Chicago, Rudy Pillis was behind the bench when Chicago last yeah. won a Stanley Cup. So I had known about Rudy. I think he was the general manager of Chicago when he came out to Billings, Montana, to see our Medicine Hat Tigers play the Billings Bighorns. And Patty Janelle, my coach, it was my draft year, Patty introduced me to Rudy after the game, and I was awestruck. But it was interesting because Rudy said something like this to me. You know, Kelly, I really like your game, but at times you look scared of the puck. And I was like, and I just, I was 17 or 18, I blurted out, yeah, it hurts. Like I didn't deny it. Why, why would I? Why would I say I'm not scared? I was like, yeah, of course I'm scared. I'm. It hurts. I think we could all sympathize with that. That's why, like, I, right? I, I, I know that there are some. There are some, but I, but that was the era. Like, you would like. Correct me if I'm wrong. Like, you would know. Like, on each team, there were always, like, and now everybody fires it hard. Like, holy yeah, smokes, everybody can right. shoot the puck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but back then, there was, like, you know, Al McInnes was, like, he was the Cadillac. He was the class of all of it. Yeah. Al McInnes wound up. It's like, oof, geez, this is not going to tickle. Yeah. Uh, Doug Wilson had a hammer. A lot of guys could really hammer the puck. There's a difference yeah. between, goalies will always talk about this, a hard shot and a heavy shot. Like yeah. um, 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 every time I've talked, like Kevin Woodley, for example, from from in goal, sure. we'll talk about shots that really sort of sink in and hurt, as opposed to just someone yeah. who can who can blast it. I don't know that I can describe it properly, but you know what I'm going for there. Like who no, who had that I, like I can maybe heavy help shot? You. Yeah, I can maybe help okay. you. So there's the difference being a hard shot. If I, as the goaltender, just get a piece of it, just nick it with my stick or my blocker or my shoulder, in all likelihood, that's enough to steer it away from the net. A heavy shot, you've got to get most of your body behind it. Otherwise, it's just going to plow right through you and into the net. And, and that was the difference for me. A lot of guys had hard shots, but I knew if I, if I could just get a tiny bit of it, I had a chance of steering it wide, whereas the heavy ones, the, not only did they plow through you, but they hurt every time. So I would put uh, Brett Hall in that same category with Al and uh, Al uh, Iafredi. And Al Iafredi, my gosh, when he really got behind it. And I was lucky. I played with Al for two years in San Jose, and he was the kindest yeah. guy because he would only shoot the puck about 80% uh, at uh, myself and my teammate, my other goaltenders in practice because he, he he was aware of how hard his shot was and he didn't want to hurt us. I always thought that Ally Afraid had the had the potential to be one of the greatest defensemen um, of yeah. his era, maybe of all time. Like when you go into just breaking down what goes into a, a hockey player, Al could do it. Al was big. Al could move his yeah. feet. Al had a hammer yeah. of a shot. Al was Al was yeah. really strong. Um, yeah. I've always been fascinated by by Ally Afraid. Um, I remember in, in Maple Leaf training camp, I mean, John Brophy got on him. This is the, when, you know, teams could do two-a-days. And in between, I can recall one training camp, I afraid he ended up leaving. And, you know, Jeff Jackson, who's now with the Edmonton Oilers, had to, to go and drive to Al's house and bring him back uh, to Maple Leaf training right. camp because Brophy, in between sessions, would have him on the bike in his equipment. Kelly, he would just Hell say, yeah. take off your skates oh, yeah. and get on the yeah. bike. And in between sessions, like that. But I always looked at Al... I'm curious if you have any stories about Al or, or a quick thought or two on Al before we wrap up here. I always thought he could have been one of the best defensemen of all time, certainly one of the best defensemen of his era. Oh, yeah. Well, Al was uh, a very quiet guy. He uh, he stuck to himself pretty much. He, he had a great sense of humor, yeah. and I loved his laughter. But the best memories I have would be at our practice rink, and Al liked to smoke back then. And uh, yeah. we had, as an advisor in our organization, the legendary John Ferguson. And here, when, when I first found out that John Ferguson was a part of the Sharks organization and I was going to be around him, I, I, I became a little bit scared and nervous because I thought, oh, John Ferguson, he's going to be tough and gruff and no nonsense. Yeah. And I found out 
that he had the kindest heart and he was just a really soft person in, in the sense of his kindness. And what I really yeah. love to see, the, the interaction between Al Iafredi and John Ferguson almost every day outside of our dressing room, there would be Al having a cigarette and there would be John Ferguson getting to know Al and figuring him out and helping him. And that was just the kindness of uh, John Ferguson. I've always thought of that man in that sense. Uh, maybe a little bit misunderstood by all of us that here I thought because of the way that he played uh, totally. hockey, yeah, that he would have been a different person, but he wasn't. He was just just the nicest guy. And I, I would think that Al Iafredi would share those same thoughts, just that uh, how John went way out of his way to try and make Al feel really comfortable in the Sharks organization. You know, it's so interesting because the, the thing that turned me around, because I'm, I'm with you, like I just knew, you know, the, the legend of John Ferguson. And I'm just looking at my bookshelf here right now. And there's the, it was after I read um, uh, John's autobiography called Thunder and Lightning, um, I was all turned around on, on Ferguson and, and who he was. Because like, I'm like you, I just thought like, holy smokes, that's, you know, that's Montreal's cop. Like that's Montreal's police. Yeah. That's the one that Montreal brought yeah. in to, to calm everybody yeah. down. Like he'll take on all comers and he'll make ice for, yeah. for everybody. Everybody, like take on everybody like, that's what I thought and then I remember after reading that book and I encourage everyone to read Thunder and Lightning it's a great book it really mm -hmm. is and I read it again a few years ago it's excellent that's the one that really yeah. turned me around uh, on who John Ferguson was well we started the interview by talking about a book and that's Ken Reads and we finished up by talking about John Ferguson's <laughs> Thunder and Lightning and I'll call that a tidy half hour of our week Kelly Reed. I love it <laughs> um, thanks man uh, I, I love talking stories with you you're the best um, we'll watch for you on Hockey Nights um, uh, we didn't get to talk about the Flames at all but that's fine things are, are tough in Alberta right yeah. now uh, with yeah, both teams yeah. have yourself a yeah. wonderful weekend Kelly thanks for sharing some great stories pal my pleasure. It's always great when you invite me on, Jeff. Love to do it again. You're the best. Uh, the invitation stands. The door is wide open for Kelly Rudy from Hockey Night in Canada and the Calgary Flames broadcasts. Okay, uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, great story time with Kelly Rudy. Could do that all day long. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the Philadelphia Flyers and a lot of things going on in Philadelphia right now. And the good news story is they're winning. And, man, did they ever hand it to the Minnesota Wild last night. 6-2 is the final. And, look, Sean Couturier is back. Uh, Joel Farabee is back. That blue line is playing well. The goaltenders are playing well. But the cloud over a lot of it right now is Morgan Frost, former first-round draft pick of the Philadelphia Flyers, is not playing at all. Charlie O'Connor is going to stop by. He covers the Philadelphia Flyers at Philly Sports, Philly Flyers podcast as well. He's a host of that pod. He's going to drop by to fill us in on what's happening with the Philadelphia Flyers. And are they wrecking the rebuild? Or do we just say, and yes, I'm tongue-in-cheek on this one, the rebuild is over. And it's time for the next stage of the Philadelphia Flyers. Charlie O'Connor in a couple of moments. Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360. That was so much fun with Kelly. Back in a moment. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just a question I'll throw out there. Does anybody want to remind the Philadelphia Flyers this is supposed to be a rebuild? That the rebuild has just begun. The general manager is new. <laughs> a lot of new around the organization. Danny Briere, Keith Jones, a lot of new in this organization. Supposed to be a rebuild, not a season where your checks notes second in the Metropolitan Division after dismantling the Minnesota Wild 6-2 last night. Uh, Charlie O'Connor is our good friend, lead Flyers writer at Philly Sports, also host of the Philly Flyers podcast. Charlie, how are you today? Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Uh, the pleasure is mine. Uh, I'll open uh, with the tongue-in-cheek uh, comments. Uh, the rebuild is over. 
This is all about wins now, right, Charlie? All that <laughs> stuff that Briere and Jones were talking about at the end of last year and through the summer and all the trades and guys going to Columbus, et cetera, and bodies out the door. Uh, that's all done now, right? Now it's on to the, the next phase, correct, if I'm watching the Philadelphia Flyers correctly here? Well, you know, I don't think so. But it, we are talking about seven games here, <laughs> but it's com- it's completely fair to say that the Flyers are playing well. And, you know, some people made the comparison to last year in, in Philadelphia, which is true. Uh, last year, the Flyers got off to, to a really strong start in October. Um, they were winning games. You know, we, people like you were saying, sure. are the Flyers better than we all thought they were going to be? And then they fell apart. The difference, yep. though, is that last year it was very much a product of Carter Hart standing on his head. He was bailing out the Flyers on a nightly basis. They were getting outshot. They were getting out chance. They were getting outplayed. This year, so far, the Flyers are earning their wins. They really have only had one bad game, which was the second game of the season in Ottawa when the Senators really just took them yep. the cleaners. Beyond that, they've been very much in every game. They've they won the majority of them, but even their two losses this past, uh, I believe, on Saturday and then on Tuesday, they lost to Dallas in overtime. They lost to Vegas with, with time running out. You're talking about two, possibly, I guess, along with Colorado, two of the biggest favorites in the Western Conference, and the Flyers hung right with them. You know, maybe they didn't outplay them, but they certainly didn't look outmatched. And, you know, do I think this is going to hold? No, I don't think so. This is a Flyers team that. They have to work very, very hard in order to stay with these teams. And I don't know if for 82 games they can, and this isn't a slight against them, it's just the fact that the the degree of effort that they have to keep up in order to play teams that have more talent than they do, I don't know if that degree of effort can be sustained for 82 games. But so far through seven, in in six of those games, they sustained it. And as long as they keep doing that, they're going to be able to keep keep playing with this team because this is – so far, at least, and I guess it shouldn't shock you, it's John Tortorella, but this is a really hard-working flyer. Yeah, the, this really is, and I, I want to drill down on a couple of players here, but um, but real quick, you mentioned that Vegas game, and that was during you know the, the hockey buffet night where uh, every team was in action, um, and I was one of those you know East Coasters, and you were as well that stayed up to watch <laughs> the last game of the night, and I'm with you. Like, was it like five seconds left that uh, Shea Theodore scored to, to give the Vegas Golden Knights the one goal win? Philly was with them all three periods. Like, I remember thinking about this one. It's like, okay, Vegas is going to remind Philadelphia what a quote-unquote real team looks like and plays like, and they're going to hand it to them here. Not at all. Like, Philly was with them every step of the way. And if you can take a win out of a loss, I think that's the one you point to. I really do. I think that it was the most – how am I going to say this? It was the most impressive loss that we've seen this season, if that makes sense. Yeah, they played really well. They were they were ahead of that game for a bit. I do think though what you saw in that game, number one, as I said, this is a hard working team and they worked extremely hard in that game. Yeah. Number one though, this is a Flyers team that, you know, they can control play through sheer effort and hard work for ten minutes. And then a more talented team like Vegas can control play for four minutes and create just as many chances in those four minutes as the Flyers created in their tent. And that's where you get into the, the, the problem for the future is that the Flyers have to work almost twice as hard as the other team to be able to, to hang with them the way they did with Vegas. Sure. And maybe they can keep it up, but it's not going to be easy. The second aspect that I think over time is going to probably result in, in this fast start coming a little bit back to earth was the, the reason why, if you're really breaking down the two goals they allowed in the third period of that game, the reason why they lost that game is because on the game-tying goal, Igor Zamula, who is, is one of their, their young defenseman prospects, he's still very much trying to find his footing in the NHL. He gets beat by Paul Cotter, gets absolutely de- destroyed on the rush. And then with less than a minute left, their other young defenseman, Cam York, turns the puck over, and then it ends up leading to the, to the Shea Theodore goal. This is a young defense core. And this is a, a defense core that, that doesn't have the kind of talent that the best defense core has. Or maybe it's talented, 
that maybe doesn't have the same kind of experience, they're going to make mistakes. You know, guys like Zamola, guys like York, Neil Andre was up to start the year. He made a bunch of mistakes. There's other prospects coming. Yeah. They're going to make mistakes. And over time, I think teams are going to take advantage of that. You saw Vegas do it in the, in the third period. But the way the Flyers are looking at it is we need to rebuild this blue line core and we need to, to deal with the growing pain. So it's not necessarily a bad thing for the Flyers rebuild, but if you're banking on this team, you know, staying near the top of the Metro, I think that probably more than anything is what's going to have them slide down as the year progresses. Let, let me throw one more name into that mix. Uh, and you mentioned the two young defensemen, Cam York and Nigor Zamula. Um, and that's well told on the, on, on the left side. The, the one guy, and he's not young, he's not 22 or, or 23 like York or Zamula, he's 28 or 29 years old right now, is Sean Walker. Like, I know it's early, but every time I watch the Philadelphia Flyers, I come away impressed with Sean Walker. Do you have a thought or two on him? I think he's been great. I think he is, you know, hit, along with, with Travis Sanheim, who, who I did a feature story on earlier this week, who's so far so good for the Flyers, has really stepped up to meet mm-hmm. that number one defenseman role that was vacated by Evan Provorov. I think Sean Walker has been the biggest surprise for the Flyers. This is a guy, and, and to be fair, it's not like Sean Walker is some scrub. I know he was sort of a salary dump. You know, in the Ivan Provorov trade, yep. L.A. was trying to clear, to clear cap space. But this is a guy who in the past was a quality top four defenseman for a, a decent team in L.A. It's just he dealt with injuries, kind of got shuffled out because they have so many talented young guys coming up. And he just didn't seem like he had a spot there. Well, this version of Sean Walker that we've seen so far this year, he very much looks like pre-injury Sean Walker. This looks like the guy who, I mean, and I'm not saying Sean Walker is, is an impact top pair defenseman or anything, but at his best in LA, he looked like a quality right-handed shooting top four defenseman. And that's exactly what he's looked so far. You know, the the flyers, honestly, they might've just kind of lucked out on this one. They might've stumbled into, you know, a legitimate second pair right-handed shooting defenseman. And, you know, whether that's a guy who can be part of the, the near-term future or whether that's a guy who maybe if the Flyers fall off, he's only got this year left on his deal, maybe he could be a guy who they could cash yeah. in for major assets at the deadline. Well, that, that's what I wonder about here, too, with, with, with Sean Walker. As much as, you know, this is bonanza for the Philadelphia Flyers, this is a great opportunity for him. Uh, and if he can have a, I don't know, what do you figure, Charlie, like 30 to 40-point season, um, you know how valued right shot defensemen are. What do we always say? Oh, he's right shot. Add ten percent to the contract. Like that's yeah. that plays. Um, come come free agency. Uh, let me get to one of the big topics. I want I want to go. I want to talk about Sean Couture in a couple of seconds here, and Joel Farabee, etc. But um, I got to address it. The Morgan Frost situation. And again, doesn't play last night. Uh, Philadelphia Flyers whip the Minnesota Wild six to two. And it's the fifth game in a row that he doesn't dress. Like, I know there are problems with the Winnipeg Jets and how they're handling Cole Perfetti right now, and that is very much becoming an issue uh, in Winnipeg, as you well know. This one's, this one's like, even bigger. Like, I don't know that it would even... I don't know that it would surprise me if he either has already asked for a trade or will ask for a trade if this continues... I mean, how much is this a elephant in the room in just about every conversation with the Flyers right now? Well, well what I'll say is it's not like this came out of nowhere. This is something that, that kind of built from last year. Last year, obviously last year was John Torrell's first year in Philadelphia. At the start of the year, he wasn't a big fan of what he saw from Morgan Frost. He actually scratched him relatively early in the season in yeah. a game in Toronto and Morgan Frost is, of course, from the Toronto area. Obviously, his father yeah. you know, very much involved with, with, with the Toronto organization for years. Um, that yeah. didn't play particularly well, you know, w- within the, the Frost camp, understandably so. Then Frost kind of earned his way back in. He, he got back in the lineup. He actually, you know, led the Flyers in scoring in the second half of the season. He seemed to be taking a step forward. But, you know, as someone who covered the Flyers on a daily basis, you, you asked – John Tortorella about Morgan Frost, even during the stretch when he was scoring a ton. And you got the sense that even Tortorella's praise of Frost, even when he was playing his best, still came off as grudging in the sense that he didn't seem like he was ever really fully sold on Frost. And 
Some people view that as unfair. Honestly, I, I did as well. I thought Frost had a pretty strong second half. It wasn't perfect. It's not like he turned himself into this dominating two-way threat. He wasn't much of a threat on the power play, but he was a great even strength scorer. He was showing his creativity. I just don't think he's one of Tortorella's guys. And what happened was they had a bad game in, in Ottawa. Everybody had a bad game. Frost didn't play well, but a lot of people didn't. And the Flyers had two prospects and Bobby Brink and Tyson Forrester, who they were kind of cycling in and out to start the year. They were in a little bit of a rotation. And it just seemed like, you know, when something happened, John Tortorella turned to the first guy who he has doesn't have a problem moving out of the lineup, and that's Morgan Frost. He's the guy who he just doesn't quite doesn't quite love. And I don't think the intention was for him to be out of the lineup for a long period of time. But then the Flyers started winning, and they started playing really well against really good teams. <laughs> and and now they, yeah. they're not putting him back in because they don't want to change up the forward core because they're playing really well. Like, like I think Frost will get back in the lineup at some point because, number one, the Flyers aren't going to keep winning. Like No one keeps winning to this degree or, or keeps playing this well sure. um, for an extended period of time. Number two, it's the NHL guys get hurt someone's eventually going to get hurt i'm sure and for us they'll come back in but i think the the disconnect between player and coach even if frost comes back in i don't think that's going anywhere and that's a problem that they're going to have to address and or maybe not address maybe this just isn't a fit but i think the long-term issue really is is the disconnect the clear disconnect between torts and frost Okay, the goalies. Uh, there are a handful of teams that are carrying three goalies right now. I know that everyone's terrified about goalie waivers in Tampa, although Jonas Johansson just recorded another shutout. Maybe Tampa's just fine, and you can sneak a goaltender <laughs> down to the American Hockey League uh, without the threat of Tampa trying to steal your goaltender. So, you know, whether it's Hart, Urson, Sandstrom, how does the three-head monster play itself out here in Philadelphia? Yeah, it honestly surprises me that this is still going on for for as long as it is. And and look, Carter Hart's obviously yeah. the number one. Sam Harrison is is obviously the number two. Even before the end of training camp, John Tortorella straight up said Harrison had won the job. Sandstrom's the number three. Then they kept Sandstrom. Now I agree that the Tampa thing certainly plays a role. They don't want to lose him. And I do think also. You know, probably the the lingering uncertainty about Hockey Canada probably plays a role. You know, they don't want to be in a situation where you know, if one day it turns out that that they're that Carter Hart's unavailable to them for quite a while, they don't want to have a week before lost Felix Sandstrom on waivers, and then suddenly Cal Peterson is your backup. I, I think they want to to hold on to this goaltending depth for as long as possible because they don't know how that situation is going to play out. Also, there's injuries. You know, Carter Hart's gotten banged up in the past in his career. He's yep. missed time. They like Felix Sandstrom. So I really think a lot of this more than anything else is just them continuing to kick the can down the road and figuring, you know, mm-hmm. as long as we can keep three goalies, we will. If we end up in a situation where we're in a roster crunch, yeah, we'll probably have to wait Felix Sandstrom because he's clearly the number three. But until they absolutely have to do it, I don't think they're going to. Um, I didn't really care how he played, which kind of sounds weird. I-, I just wanted to see Sean Couturier back in the lineup. I wanted to see Sean Couturier healthy. He's one of my favorite players. Um, and now that Patrice Bergeron has exited the chat, uh, the Selkie Trophy is up for grabs. I didn't know that Sean Couturier was going to step in and we'd start to whisper, hmm, I wonder if Sean Couturier could actually win this thing. Um, <laughs> your thoughts on what we've seen so far from Sean Couturier, not just back in the NHL, but but playing great. Like, really look at it. It's, it's like you have to be like the coldest of cold person not to appreciate what Sean Couturier has gone through and all the surgeries and the hard work to get back. Um, if you could share your thoughts on what you've seen so far from the number one center for the Philadelphia Flyers, that would be great. Yeah, and obviously I'm biased. I cover the team. You know, I, I know Couturier personally covered him for a number of years. But in my mind, this is is one of the low key best stories in the NHL right now. You know, this is a guy who, before Absolutely. playing in Game One, the, the last time he had played was December of 2021. He he was out with a back injury, decided to get surgery in February 2022, and that first surgery didn't take. And now we're talking about you know a 30 year old going on 31 who's had two back surgeries, who missed a year and a half, and 
it, you know, look, I'm with you. I'm a big fan of Sean Gretzky's game. I really enjoy watching him play hockey. But I came into the season thinking, you know, hey, if he can come back and he's just a, a solid second-line center, you know, that's great. And, that, and the, the Flyers will, will count, count their blessings that at least the guy can play and at least he doesn't look, you know, like a complete and total shell of himself. Well, you watch him last week go up head-to-head with Connor McDavid and shut him down, and you think to yourself, this looks oh, like yeah. the exact same guy yeah. from before the back surgeries. And, <laughs> and I'm, not saying there, I'm not saying there's not some rust there. Like, there is. He, there, there are some plays with the puck that, you know, the, the, the former John Gutierrez would have made, that he's flubbed. He's not all the way back yet. But I think that's more rust than him losing something physically. And I fully expect that over time that's going to come back because physically, you know, from a skating standpoint, in terms of his physical strength and battles in the corners, he looks like the exact same dude. And it's it's huge on multiple levels for the Flyers. Number one, they're just happy to see Couturier back. But number two, this is a guy who has so many more years left on a massive contract with a no-movement clause. And, yeah, they said they're oh, yeah. pivoting to a rebuild, but that's a contract that, you know, even after, like, Matt Bay Mitchkoff is, is hopefully over in Philadelphia, you might still be stuck with an albatross of a deal if Sean Gutierrez was just a fourth-line center, you know, overpaid by five, yeah. six mil a year. Suddenly, he looks like he could be a Selkie contender. And, you know, I'm sure he'll decline a yeah. bit moving into his, his mid to late 30s. But if he's coming down from a ceiling of being a Selkie contender, suddenly that contract isn't scary. That contract actually might not be bad at all, especially when the cap ceiling goes up. So this is something where, you know, a contract, a situation that could have really hamstrung the Flyers heading into to their rebuild and then hopefully in their mind when they when they turn the corner to a contract that legitimately might help them over the next, you know, five, six years. Yeah. Um, I got about 30 seconds for this, and it's probably not enough, but there are three test <laughs> cases for ADR, artificial disc replacement in the NHL. The headliner is Jack Eichel. Uh, we all remember the situation with Buffalo and uh, the trade, and then he you know, uh, ends up winning the Stanley Cup. There's Tyler Johnson with Chicago, and there's Joel Farabee of the Philadelphia Flyers. Now, he couldn't really train, work out after having the surgery last year. This year, quite different, and we're seeing a much better Joel Farabee. When we talk about players coming back. Couturier is exhibit A, but also when you look at Philadelphia, you have to look at Joel Farabee. Do you have a hot 30 seconds, Charlie, on Joel Farabee? Yeah, he, he, he looks strong. He looks quicker than he did. Um, he has, he's showing really, really good chemistry with, uh, with rookie Bobby Brink. Um, I, I'm not expecting you know him to be a superstar, but he sure looks like he's uh, he's back to being the guy that that they thought they were they were getting when they signed him to that uh, that thirty million dollar contract a few years ago. He looks like a real quality for it. Absolutely, uh, Flyers next in action tomorrow afternoon uh, against the Anaheim Ducks. Charlie, thanks so much as always for uh, for stopping by. Man, you're thorough with your coverage of the Philadelphia Flyers. Very much appreciated from this corner. Continued success, pal. All right, thanks so much, Jeff. Charlie O'Connor uh, from Philly Sports, uh, lead writer there, also co-host of the Philly Flyers podcast. You used to read Charlie at The Athletic. Um, all right, on that, a couple of things. Hockey Night in Canada, uh, always a big deal. Action gets underway at 6.30 with uh, your host, Ron McLean and Hockey Central at 6.30 Eastern. Then puck dropping just after 7 o'clock, three games. Winnipeg and Montreal, Toronto, Nashville, Ottawa, and Pittsburgh. The late game... The New York Rangers facing off against the Vancouver Canucks, 10 o'clock Eastern there. Uh, John Shorthouse, Louis DeBras, Sadok with that one. Uh, Vancouver's playing real good, and so are the New York Rangers. And then don't forget on Sunday, it's a heritage classic from Commonwealth. The Edmonton Oilers. Can Connor make the game? Face off against the Calgary Flames. Two teams limping into this one. Things have not gone well. Things have not gone well in Alberta. Uh, thanks to everyone who uh, took part in this program this week. Uh, thank you to Frank Baraska, Lance Kennedy, David Siss, and Matt Marchese. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, the show returns on Monday at noon across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360. Here's Ken Reed's book, Go Get It. It's outstanding. Go, reader. Great offering. Have a great weekend, everybody. Talk to you Monday.